If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Last week we introduced this book by looking at the first four verses, and we talked about why Luke had written this book, what his goal and purpose was, namely to confirm and assure faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, Luke begins now in verse 5 quite properly with the book itself, and it's a little surprising that in a book about Jesus Christ it would start off in an unexpected place. The first people that we're introduced to are a husband and wife named Zachariah and Elizabeth. And if you've read the introduction, if your anticipation has been built to, to, to think this book is about Jesus Christ and I, I long to hear about him and to, uh, to be assured that my faith in him is well-founded, then your experience of suddenly hearing about Zachariah and Elizabeth might be a little underwhelming. It reminds me of uh, sitting in the theater at the last Lord of the Rings movie, The Return of the King, and with having seen the first two with this amazing adventure and these climactic battles that the third movie begins with a slow fade-in to a worm, a worm on a man's finger about to be put on a, a fishing hook, and you're thinking, what in the world am I looking at here? What does this have to do with anything? Where is the battle? Where is the continuation of the story? And yet as that opening scene unfolds, you realize it is an essential scene, a scene that shows you important history leading up to the War of the Ring. And likewise, here in the opening verses of Luke's Gospel, what you see, something that at first may appear to be insignificant, takes on greater significance as you see it placed, it, 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 it is a key role, it is a key movement in the unfolding story of God fulfilling His good plan to bring about a Savior named Jesus Christ. And so as we look through these opening verses, what we catch is a glimpse of the plan of God itself. And in doing so, we see something about His character. Follow along as I begin reading our passage this morning. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. This is the word of God. May he bless its reading. As we begin this morning, the first thing we see about the good plan of God is his care for his people. We see God's care for his people. Luke begins by painting a picture for us that we might understand the circumstances and the situation of the people that we're reading about here. He says that these circumstances of their life took place in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Well, this was long after the exile of God's people to the nations for their sin. Our remnant has been brought back to Israel under the leadership of men like Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, and they had begun rebuilding their lives. And one of the things that they had done was rebuilt the temple of God. And in fact, those that uh, could, could remember or, or had heard stories about the glory of the temple that Solomon constructed, the Bible says they wept at the, the paucity and the uh, seeming cheapness of this second temple that they were able to build. Yet centuries later, this man Herod, who wanted to perpetuate his name and his reputation through the construction of various buildings and temples, orchestrated a massive rebuilding of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and it was magnificent. The ancient historian Josephus writes that it was a building that lacked nothing that could astound either the mind or the eye. 
for being covered in all sides with massive plates of gold. The sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. It would have been an amazing sight and a place also familiar to this couple, for as we read, Zechariah was a priest of the division of Abijah. This means that Zechariah was a descendant of Aaron, a family that God had specifically said in his law, only the descendants of Aaron can serve as priests in my temple. And therefore, Zechariah is born into that line and has been ordained to serve as a priest for the people at this temple. Likewise, Elizabeth, his wife, was from the daughters of Aaron and was in fact named after Aaron's own wife, Elizabeth. When we think about this in the cultural context, then, you've got a guy who has been blessed by God's grace to be born into the priestly line and therefore serve as a priest. He marries a, a, a woman who was also a descendant of Aaron from the same uh, people, from the same tribe, from the same clan. Therefore, in the minds of those around them, their life would have been especially blessed. Their, their wedding celebration would have been especially joyous and people would have looked forward to great things from this couple. More significantly, though, Luke says that not just culturally, but literally, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They not only had a godly heritage, but they lived a godly life. This doesn't mean that they were perfect, but rather they consistently and faithfully obeyed God's law. And therefore, you have already this wonderful picture of a marriage. You have this wonderful picture of a husband and wife living and serving faithfully before God. And yet, very quickly, this beautiful image is marred by something else. We're told that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. For, again, a culture that prized children. We don't, we don't live in a culture like that very much anymore. We live in a culture where people put off having children so that they can have fun and be single and, and travel and do all kinds of amazing things. We live in a culture where, where uh, some people never want to have kids because they feel like uh, that um, it's, an, it's an impediment on their plans and their purposes. But such was not first century Judaism. This was a time and a people where children were prized. Having uh, descendants was a thing to be thankful to God for. The more, the merrier, as it were. And therefore, to not have descendants, to not have progeny, was often seen as a sign of judgment from God. It would have meant that Elizabeth and Zechariah would have likely been looked upon by some with reproach and even suspicion as to their future status. What made it worse was that they are now advanced in years, meaning they are too old to have children. Their time of childbearing has passed, and they were left with nothing. And this is why some would have, would have looked upon them as second-class Jews. But as Phil Riken says, that was not just bad manners, it was even worse theology. We already know there's nothing specific in their life that would bring about God's judgment in this way. And in fact, we know from the whole Bible that pain in your life, suffering in your life, calamity in your life is no automatic guarantee that it is revealing displeasure from God about you. 
If you don't understand that, if you don't believe that, because so many teachers and preachers on television say the opposite. Just read about Job. Read about Joseph. Read about Jesus Christ. Men who endured great suffering and pain and calamity, and yet the Bible is clear that in none of their lives was there any sin that merited that. In fact, just the opposite. They were exemplars of righteousness and faithfulness before God. Though our sin does sometimes bring difficult consequences to our lives, Hardship and suffering are not automatic indicators of God's judgment here. In this passage especially, we see Zechariah and Elizabeth had lived a life of righteousness before God. This was not punishment for sin. As they had grown in years, they would also grown in godliness, and they had served well their Lord. And yet, and yet they've always served God with a deep, abiding pain, a pain of childlessness. Perhaps they were angry over money. Perhaps that pervasive anger led to bitterness. Perhaps they never fell into those sins. We, we simply don't know. All we know is at the end of their life now, as they are advanced in years and their time is growing short, God, through Luke, makes this statement, they are a righteous couple before God. This means that they are living their life in such a way that they love God and they never doubt His goodness in their Despite this pain. In that regard, Zechariah and Elizabeth stand as examples to us today. For we are far too tempted to whine and complain because we've become intolerant of difficulty and pain. And we have to resist the temptation to believe somehow if those things are in our life, God isn't good anymore. In fact, as we will see here, sometimes things like pain and difficulty and suffering are an intentional part of God's good plan to bring about His good purposes. Therefore, when we encounter suffering, the question that we should not ask is, why did I deserve this? But rather, how can I glorify my goodness? That's what Zachariah and Elizabeth did. They endured this, this pain of barrenness all of their life, and yet they never faltered to live in a way that pleased God, to live righteously before Him and before the rest of the nation. God's care for His people reveals His good plan, but so does the provision of His Word. This is the second thing that we see. God's good plan is seen in God's provision of His Word. We've been introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then in verse 8 we read this. Now while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now you may not understand the significance of this. Uh, Let me explain it to you. In in this time, uh, in these days, there were more priests than there were jobs to do at the temple. Uh, There was an overabundance of priests ready to serve and not anything for them to do. So Israel's priests were divided into 24 divisions. And each division served at the temple on a rotating basis for two weeks a year, plus the national national festival such as Passover. And Zechariah was serving at a time when he had been given a further honor. Every two days, priests were chosen to enter the holy place and offer the incense on Israel's sweet altar of prayer in the temple, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And since there were so many priests, the choice about who would serve was made by lot. They literally rolled the dice and said, who's it going to be this time? And since they had so many priests, if you were chosen by lot for that service, you could never do it again. It was a a once-in-a-lifetime 
opportunity. Therefore, this would have been the high point of Zachariah's ministry. Though, having been on the outside teaching uh, the people the law, this was an opportunity for him to actually enter the temple and offer sacrifice and prayers on behalf of the people. And that's exactly what he did. It was something that he had never done before, nor would he ever be able to do again. He entered the holy place of the temple, standing amidst the altar of incense, the lampstand, and the showbread. There he would offer the incense on behalf of the people, representing both his prayers for them, interceding on their behalf, as well as the prayers of the godly that had gathered outside to pray for the people. Imagine what Zechariah would have been praying for. I imagine even in his old age, even when part of him knew it's never going to happen, he was praying for a son, most likely a son. But this was about more than just his own age. He was the priest in Israel. His job was to teach and to intercede for God's people. Therefore, I think he was doing what generation after generation after generation of priests before him were doing, and that is praying that God would send the long-promised Messiah, that God would bring salvation once again to his people. It would have been an exciting, joyous moment in his life, but he had no idea how much so told that as the priest prayed, verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Can you imagine that? First of all, here's, here's a, we talked last week about the historical authenticity and about how Luke hunted down eyewitnesses. Here's one of those little ways you can know. Luke talked to this guy. Luke talked to Zechariah because notice what it says. The angel of the Lord is standing where? On the right side of the altar of incense. This is not just a made-up story. This is, this is the report of a guy who has seen that. And such was the image burned in his mind that he will never forget right there on the right side of the altar of incense that stood before it. That's where the angel was. But can you imagine? Here he is in this place praying, looking over, seeing this angel. What, what would you have done? If in the midst of praying one Sunday you look up and there's an angel of the Lord standing there. As my old seminary professor said, you'd likely wet your pants. That, that, that's what you do when you see a being from heaven before you. That's what all of the people in the, in the Old Testament do. They, they fall on their face in shock. Well, we know how Zechariah would have reacted, we're told. Verse 12, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It's an astounding experience, but do you, again, do, do you realize the weight of what is happening here? Not, not just the, the, the contents of the message itself, but do you remember your biblical history? The last time that God spoke directly to his people was through the prophet Malachi. The prophetic word came to them through him. That was over 400 years ago. 400 years ago. God had spared his people from exile. He gave them a final word of hope, the hope of a forerunner who would prepare the way for the Lord's own coming. Then, as it were, God went dark. There was no more word for them. 
There was no more visions. There was no more prophets raised up to give God's word to God's people. It doesn't mean that he wasn't watching over them. It doesn't mean that he wasn't caring for them. It doesn't mean that he wasn't sovereignly bringing about his plan through their lives, but he wasn't giving details. For 400 years, God was silent. And suddenly he speaks again, the voice of an angel. And Zechariah has the privilege of being the first one to hear that voice of an angel. Even today as we sit here and we listen to the word being preached, or when you're at home taking up the book for yourself and reading the word, we have to be careful that we don't forget what we're looking at, what we're hearing. This is God speaking to us. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, Paul says that when God's man preaches God's word, it is God's son who speaks through him. That is to say, not simply the preacher's word, but the words of God's own son are being heard through those words. Likewise, when God's people read God's word, it is God's spirit that makes it live to them. The spirit is opening minds to understand, softening hearts to believe, and causing lives to be changed. It is a wondrous thing that we have the scriptures. Consider it is the the infinite being who exists far and above us and whose ways are far and above us. One who has simply spoken and brought into existence light and darkness, stars and galaxies, planets and people. The Almighty has spoken His word and He has preserved His word for us through this book. And as we... As we stand back from what is familiar about having a Bible, it's absolutely amazing the thought of it. It is, it is simply stunning what God has done for us. And if we lose that wonder, then the book will become commonplace to us. We will feel less and less a desire to read it or understand it. It will become something that we can take or leave and never worry about building our lives on. Recently, a Christian author wrote a book, and it received a lot of criticism from a certain section of, of um, the evangelical church. And her response back was to, to be a bit indignant and say, there's nothing really wrong with my book. What's wrong is the fact that I am, uh, I am tipping the apple cart. I am uh, pushing off the, the kind of good old boy's thoughts and mentality about writing and who can write and who is spiritual. And they're upset that, that as a woman, that, that I am equal to them. But the reality is, That's not what the critique is mainly about. She has failed to hear for her critics. What they are criticizing is the way in which she interprets and handles the Bible in her book. For in in seeking to explain what God's Word says, she actually trashes it. She, She presents a way of interpreting God's Word that says, this isn't really God's Word in the sense that it, it, it's, uh, it's literally true. It's always true. It's always going to be true for every people. In fact, you can kind of take and leave, pick and choose what you believe and what you do and leave the rest on the cutting room floor. Thus, our critics say, well, you've been left with no Bible at all if that's what you understand. And the temptation for us is not to necessarily declare with our lips, this is not God's word but to act as if it is, to not read it believing it is true, to, to not read it with an eye towards understanding and obeying it. If you cannot see that this is God's book, His words living and active, never in error, always the same in meaning for everyone who reads it, then you will fail to see the goodness of God in your life who has provided that book to you. You will have failed to comprehend how generous and gracious 
God is to reveal himself to us, to speak to us, his people, and to any who will listen by opening his word. We must not take it lightly, for Zechariah certainly didn't. God has once again speaking to his people, and Zechariah was the one who heard it. But what did he hear? What did God say when he began speaking again? It was a message of hope that revealed his power to save. This is another part of God's good plan that we see here, namely God's power for salvation. God's power for salvation. The word Zechariah received was about the coming salvation of God's people. And in preparation for that coming salvation, God was revealing his power. Namely, hey, I can do what I've promised to do. I've said I can save, and I will show you I'm capable of saving. And so the first thing that we see is this. We see that God's power is seen in displayed miracles. His power is seen in displayed miracles. The angel says to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. The prayer that he and his wife prayed for so many years is finally coming true. Elizabeth will have a son. Just think about the issue of infertility today. So many couples struggle to get pregnant for so many different reasons, and and medicine can help some, but frankly, it can never fully correct this problem. There are still people who go through all kinds of fertility treatments and, and do in vitro fertilization, and they still cannot conceive. And God simply says, it's done. I've given you a son. Beyond just what medicine can do, even today, can you imagine someone in their 60s or their 70s going to the doctor and saying, I would like to get pregnant? They would say, sorry. You've gone through something called menopause, and it's not possible anymore. And God says, no problem. That's not a problem for me. I, I, I invented human beings. I invented the process of conception and birth. And if it's, if it's damaged, and if it doesn't work because of the curse that has been brought upon humanity because of their sinful rebellion, I can fix that. I can reverse that curse. And with my creative power, yes, even in your old age, you will conceive and you will bear a son. That's what God does. And this miracle not only signals how important the son will be, but also how important his ministry will be. God is the one who will prepare men for this coming salvation of God. And thus, the physical miracle also points to the greater spiritual miracle that God will do in the hearts of men and women everywhere. This is the second thing that we see. God's power is seen in, his, uh, in, re- in redeemed humanity. His power is seen in redeemed humanity. Luke says in verse 15 that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now this is frankly amazing because when you read the Old Testament, you have lots of prophets who were filled with God's Spirit, empowered by God's Spirit, but John is the first that we read was filled from, from the womb. In an amazing way that's not ever been repeated, nor likely ever will, God redeemed John and set him apart for the work of forerunner to the Messiah at his very conception. The miracle was not just physical, the miracle was also spiritual. And thus the visual setting apart of John, seen in the command, he must not drink wine or strong drink, just like a Nazarite in the Old Testament. It points to the deeper spiritual work that God has set him apart for. And even here, God is showing his power to save. Barrenness may be a painful effect of God's curse for sin, but even worse is the spiritual deadness of our hearts. A problem that extends across every single person, man, woman, and child who has ever lived. 
For we are not born with the Spirit as John was. John is unique among all people in that sense. We are born with sinful, corrupted hearts that are in inherent rebellion against God. We don't want a king. We don't want a God. Unless we can fashion them in our own image. Unless we can decide this is what God is like. This is the God that I will believe in. But when that's not the case, we rebel. We do our own thing. We trust our own wisdom. We're no better than Adam and Eve who, who were given everything imaginable to make their life one of bliss and happiness and joy. And they still said, no, we want more. When what more meant was death. But God is powerful to save. Just as he filled John with his spirit, so for everyone, by the preaching of the word, he can turn our hearts from loving sin to loving himself by that same spirit. In the prophets, God says, who can get rid of the leopard spots? Who can change the zebra stripes? The answer is, not us. We can't do that. I don't know how to do that. Do you know how to do that? I don't think scrubbing and soap is going to take care of that. In fact, you know, I found out that, uh, you know, you watch all these PBS shows with your kids, you learn some things, you know. Uh, Zebras, uh, that's not just in their fur, it's actually their skin is striped. So you think, I'll just shave them. That doesn't work either. God's put those stripes on there for a reason. But here's the reality. Here's the reality of that question asked by the prophets. If we can't change something like that, how are we ever going to change the sinfulness of the human heart? The answer is we can't. But God says, I can. I can. Just as I recreated the womb in Elizabeth's body, so I can recreate your sinful heart and give you life. The miraculous conception of John can become the miraculous rebirth of sin. Third, we see God revealing his saving power and fulfilled promises. His power seen fulfilled promises. 400 years ago, when God spoke to the prophet Malachi, he promised to send a forerunner to prepare the way of his coming. He said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Elijah, who is long dead. He said, I'm going to send you him before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In other words, my patience is only going to go for so long. And your continual sin is going to cause me to just wipe everything out. So I'm going to send a prophet. He's going to preach. He's going to be empowered with my spirit. And in fact, he's going to turn the hearts of people away from their sin back towards me. And Gabriel says, God is keeping that promise now through your son, Zechariah. A son you never thought you would have. John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers and the children and the disobedient and the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 400 years. And God says, now's the right time. Now's the perfect time. Now is the good time. Send that prophet, a man with the same mantle of power and, and, and proclamation as Elijah, but only more so. My servant John, the forerunner of my son, Jesus, who will prepare the hearts of my people to receive my son. How? By bringing a spirit of repentance to Israel. Because of his preaching, people will begin turning from their sin towards God. And what will they find when they turn from their sin? They will find grace. They will find grace. This is the last thing that we see. That's part of the display of God's good plan. We see God's display of his grace. God's display of His grace. How would you respond to a message like the one Zechariah received? How would you respond not just to the the fulfillment of a long 
asked for prayer, but that the fulfillment of that personal prayer would also mean the fulfillment of the promises that God has been making for hundreds of years, the very redemption of your people Israel. How should Zechariah have responded? As we've seen, Zechariah was a righteous man, but here we see that doesn't mean he was perfect. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? Meaning, how can I know for sure this is going to happen? How can I know for sure that I'm really going to have a son, that he's really going to be the the forerunner of the Messiah, that he's really going to be the fulfillment of the promises made to, to my people through the prophet Malachi? And in thinking about God's grace in response to his lack of faith, we see two things. First, we see grace that pardons faithlessness. Grace that pardons faithlessness. I'm too old. That's what Zechariah is saying in verse 18. There's no way this can happen. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah says, you know, that's a great word, but how is this going to happen? And frankly, if we know the Bible at all, we should should just say, Zechariah, what are you thinking? I mean, you're not the first person to have this problem, and you're not the first person that God has fixed it for. Doesn't this seem to be what God specializes in? Think about Abraham and Sarah, another couple, well advanced in years, probably older than Elizabeth and Zechariah. And God's creative power, again, is revealed miraculously. They might conceive and bear a son, Isaac. Decades later, Hannah is pleading before God in front of the temple, pleading for a son. And God removes her barrenness so that her and her husband, Elkanah, bear a son named Samuel. And Zechariah knows about these stories. These are not some small little cameos buried away in, in genealogies that we don't care about today. No, these, are, these are, are stories and events that bear the weight of redemptive history. Isaac was the promised son that showed God's faithfulness and power to Abraham, that he really was going to keep the covenant that he made with him, that he really was going to bless all the nations through a line that Abraham at that point did not have. God says, you don't have descendants. That's no problem. I will create descendants for you. Samuel was a mighty man of God who stood as a transition in Israel between the the, the sinful times of the judges and the godly apex of kingly leadership seen in David. He, he, He was a mighty man full of God's spirit that you see that essentially stood for God. He was God's representative like no other before him, before the people. Both anointing Saul as king and then stripping that anointing away from him because of Saul's repeated rebellion and faithlessness. Putting the anointing of kingship on a young boy named David who will be the greatest of all Israel's kings and be the father of the coming Messiah, the perfect king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Two momentous high points of the biblical storyline. And how did they come about? Through couples that were previously childless that God gave a child. Oh, Zechariah, can you not see that you are the next in line? That God was faithful back then, he was powerful back then, that he could do it, he can do it now. And the reality is, of course, they failed to see and believe that God was truly powerful and gracious as he said he was. And yet, we cannot be too hard on Zechariah, for we're the same way. 
as we claim the name of Christ, we stand on this side of the cross. We've seen the fulfillment of the promises. We've experienced the hand of God ourselves. But in the crucible of life, we so often fail to believe. We lose faith in the gospel to change lives. We say, well, there's no good sharing the gospel with him. He's such a sinner. He'll never get saved. But we've got to do something more than just preach the gospel. We've got to do something. We lose faith in God's desire to hear our prayers because of our sin. We don't believe. Following God's word will really bring us more happiness. So we follow our own wisdom, which leads to more sin. Sometimes on a daily, sometimes on an hourly basis, despite what we have seen through the Bible, despite what we've seen in our own life, we become like Zechariah and we lose faith in God. Though we should trust Him. You know, the amazing thing about God is that He pardons our faithless sin. He forgave Zechariah's sin. He didn't take away the promise that he was going to give. He allows him to continue to follow the forerunner of the Messiah. He forgives our faithlessness as well, allowing us to continue to bear his name, the name of his own son, and serve his kingdom when we fail. More than just grace that forgives, he is also a God who gives grace that we might believe. In fact, because of God's grace, faithlessness becomes faithfulness. This is a the second thing that we see, we see a grace that produces faithfulness. A grace that produces faithfulness. I love the response that Zechariah receives to his question. How shall I know this? Luke says, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. How would you like to have that on your resume? I stand in the presence of God and speak for him good news. What was the first thing you think that went through Zachariah's mind besides, oops, uh, maybe that was the wrong question. I have no idea what went through his mind, but somewhere up there among those top ten thoughts, I'm sure, was the realization of who was standing before him. Gabriel is not a stranger to the biblical storyline. Again, the last human being that, that Gabriel spoke to, Daniel. You can read about it in Daniel 8 and 9, and there he tells Daniel, God is going to send the Messiah one day, Daniel. He's going to send the Messiah, and he will end sin. He will crush all kingdoms, and it is going to be glorious. Just persevere through your struggle. And now Gabriel stands before another man, Zechariah, and he says, Zechariah, God is fulfilling the promise that he spoke to you, and I've come to give you this good news. I am telling you how God promised to answer, answer Daniel's prayer those many years ago and how he's going to do it. God forgave Zechariah for his lack of faith, but he also disciplined him for it. In verse 20, the angel says, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision of the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. This discipline of Zechariah's faithlessness was also meant to be the means by which God authenticated his word to him and instilled faith in him. Think about this. He's, he's the only one that the angel has spoken to, and yet he can't speak now and tell about what has happened. He's the one who's received this message of good news about what's going to happen, but now he can't share it with anyone. He's paralyzed in a way that he is forced to bear the weight of this message alone. That means that all he can do is let it sit and soak and simmer in his mind, all the while knowing what I would love to say I can't because God has done this thing to me and therefore demonstrated once again 
that he didn't just strike me dead. He's powerful to save me. He's also powerful to get raised as well because now Zechariah knows it's all true. And he's living out these days in, in anticipation and believing that God is going to do the very thing that he said he would. And in this way, in this way of God teaching his people to believe in him even through discipline, Zechariah should have been like his wife. Of Elizabeth, we read, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among my people. Elizabeth has no doubt that this was God. And yet, consider, Zechariah could have told her what, what has happened. Zechariah can't say, hey, listen, this is amazing. We're going to try one more time, and this time it's going to happen. We're going to get pregnant. We're going to, we're going to conceive a son, and he's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. We're, we're going, to, you're going to be joyous, and he's going, to, he's going to do all these things. He can't say any of that. But Elizabeth automatically knows this is from God. And therefore, after she conceived this child with her husband, given her age and her prayers, she knows this is the hand of God on my life. And what does she do? She stays at home to rest and to worship simple, straightforward way. She's an example to any of us who experience the work of God and believe. And believe. Maybe someone should name their daughter after this Elizabeth. Remember why Luke is writing this book. He's writing to give us assurance about the things we have believed. And even here, he is showing us the good plan of God and bringing the salvation he offers to people like us. Salvation that comes to the work of his son, Jesus Christ. John is born to help people see that Jesus himself will be born in fulfillment of God's promises of the Old Testament. All that the people have longed for is going to be fulfilled in Christ. John's miraculous conception helps prepare people for an even more miraculous conception in Jesus. One who has no human father. For Jesus is more than just a man. He's more than just a prophet. He's more than just a Messiah. He is God in the flesh come to save his people. John's ministry of preaching is meant to help people who have not had the word of God spoken to them in years. Proclaimed in a fresh and moving way by his spirit. So they will realize how much they have missed the word of God. And it will whet their appetite. So that when Christ comes on the scene, the word of God made flesh. They will be ready to receive God's final Gracious, climactic word. John's spiritual life, that is his, his spirit-empowered, renewed life, helps show the power of God to work against the hardest of human hearts and bring people to repentance and faith. They will be ready to hear from Jesus, their Savior, that salvation comes, not as you've heard from the Pharisees by keeping the law, it comes by grace. Jesus will say, I will accomplish the work in which you need to be right with God, and you simply need Zachariah and Elizabeth this morning, the call for us is to see and to believe. And the encouragement that we have is that even if we fail to believe, God is gracious and he is willing to forgive, inviting us again and again and again to trust him, to look at what he has done in Christ for us and believe. Father, we are thankful for this book of Luke. And Father, we're thankful for your servants, Zachariah and Elizabeth. God, we are thankful thankful for their godly testimony. But God, we are also in a mysterious way thankful for Zachariah's failure as well because it shows he's not just some cookie cutter myth. He's not just some made up person to advance a story. He's real. He is like us. 
is one who strives for holiness and yet is imperfect and fails. And so, God, we rejoice all the more in the display of your grace and your mercy to forgive him and to even discipline him in a way that provokes a response of renewed faith in him. Father, as we consider all that you are doing in this passage, pointing us ready to to see the work of Christ, your people, God, already helping us to see your good plan amidst pain and life, forgiving through your word in so many other ways. Father, help us now on this side of the cross to look back at Christ and see the good provision you are making, the good plan you are fulfilling to bring about that salvation. And may we look to him in faith each and every day of our lives. Father, only you can do this. So as your word has been proclaimed, God, help us to believe it and by your spirit help it to transform our hearts. We might live as your people by faith in your son. We pray in his name.